0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you're just joining us, we're typically making our way through whole books of the Bible. We'll take topics uh, for things like prayer or things like the Holy Spirit or things like hospitality during the summer. But usually during the week, we're going through whole books of the Bible left to right. We're in the book of Acts, and and we're, we're thinking about that phrase. Remember in the beginning when he says... Theophilus, I, I'm writing this as the beginning of something, not the end. The things that Jesus began to do and to teach is the subject matter of this text, but it's not the end of it because uh, the photo album that I'm using there as a theme is a living photo album. It's, it's, a, it's an open-paged photo album with pictures of people like Paul and Stephen and Silas and Barnabas, but also people like you and me in 2022 with the same power, the same purpose, uh, the same mission as those that in Acts, Acts 1.8, to go to Jerusalem, the ends of the earth, by way of the Holy Spirit, um, that mission is alive in this room today. And I think that um, if there's anything that Luke would want us to get out of it uh, between the lines of, of Acts, is don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity to continue what he started, to finish what he started in Jesus. And, and that's where we're at in, um, in Acts chapter 20 uh, this morning. Uh, sad thought of the day. Probably one of the saddest things you could maybe think about as a human being is that Everyone in your life um, that you know, uh, people that you know, you love, you walked out life with moms, dads, relatives, friends, um, at one point or another, everyone you you know you're going to have to say goodbye to at some point. And uh, some of those will be planned goodbyes, like planned goodbyes at an airport or planned goodbyes maybe by a bedside, and some of those will be surprise goodbyes, and you won't even get a chance to really verbalize the goodbye that you would like to say to the person how much they mean to you make no doubt about it that every relationship that starts with a hello has to end in a goodbye. And in the gospel, you know, it's goodbye for now and maybe not forever, but still a goodbye nonetheless. Um, I remember my first best friend um, when I was six, Morgan Loman, and me used to get in quite a bit of trouble. Uh, we used to circle Dirt Day every day at our um, Montessori kind of earthy uh, co-op that we went to, and uh, where they just sprayed water all over the dirt and let us roll around in it. And uh, so me and Morgan got into it there and um, uh, played superheroes and, and hung out, you know, basically from about four to six. He was kind of my best friend, but those are prime years, you know, when it comes to friendships. And um, I remember they came in one day uh, for a dinner with our family and, and said that Morgan had to move away to Baltimore. And, um, and you don't have the words or even the emotional experience to, like, navigate through that very well. I just remember taking some of my favorite Batman uh, comic books and, like, parts one, two, and three and just, like, taping them together. And they were my favorite, you know, comic books, and we read them together, and I just thought that would be the thing to do. And I remember giving them, you know, those comic books and watching them drive off in that U-Haul, and like, as a six-year-old or an eight-year-old, I didn't have the words for it, but still felt the full experience of like, I'm never going to have that friend again. I can remember when um, my dad and mom first uh, split, um, when he kind of came to terms with the fact my dad uh, is a professor, and... um, He uh, got his PhD from SUNY and knew that the time had come to a close to live in Albany, New York, where I was living and needed to be long distance dad and go back to Hong Kong and go um, start some ventures there in terms of business. And I remember back in 1992, when they used to let you pass the TSA agent, the security guard, he was really upset. They were like checking his laptop, you know, and he would get upset about lots of different things. I don't think that was super new, but he was definitely emotionally kind of on edge. Um, as they were checking his laptop at TSA, and um, I remember going to the um, to the gate with him, and I don't know how many times you've seen your dad cry before, but it's it's kind of a moment usually if, if you got a stiff upper lip dad like I did, and he was just lost and just in tears, and I remember the stewardess had to kind of like carry him, take him into the, to, to the hallway, and all that he could choke out is just take good care of your mom, take good care of your mom, you know, and um, it's all, all that he could say, and so obviously I have a great relationship with him then, but and now, but um, but um, but there's goodbyes, you know. Nonetheless, um, and some of them are just more casual. Like Sydney Ann Fowler called the other day, a gal that used to work at the church, and she was like, "Was the building on fire, Oliver? I got a call from the police department." Like I was like, "I thought that her number got scrubbed, you know, <clears throat> from uh, from all the places that her number is now. My number is existing and, and things." And she's like, "Everything's fine, you know, Sydney Ann. Um, I don't even really remember getting a chance to say goodbye to her. Isn't that sad sometimes when you have somebody in your life and you don't even get a chance like?" Yeah, I'm going to see you all the time. We're going to see each other. And then they just move in months and years. And, and so they told me about Julianne. Julianne had her baby, Naomi Grace, which is a super sweet gal. Julianne was one of the people that came to the church. And I just thought for both of those girls, like, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Didn't get a chance to, to really part ways in that way. <clears throat> and so um, what we've got here in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 20 is um, the Apostle Paul. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a farewell address. It's a speech that Apostle Paul is saying goodbye To the church of Ephesus. This church that he has just bled for and been, you know, stoned and persecuted for and weeps over and prays for. He's got to say goodbye to this church. He knows the time was good between them, but the time has passed and he's got to go towards towards Jerusalem. And um, and he's got this stubborn thing in his heart that he's like gonna live his life as Christ lived and die his death like Christ died, and he's going back to Jerusalem, he's going back to the belly of the beast. And so um, it's kind of like <clears throat> when uh, you're a pastor's kid and, you know, if your parents get talking to people too much after church, they're going to talk for too long, right? Uh, and so he, he doesn't get into Ephesus because he knows he's going to get probably straight off of his course. And so he calls the leaders from Ephesus to come to Miletus, this island that he's at, to, to do these parting words on this beach. And, um, and he shares three basic things, you know, that are on the screen. I'll use it kind of as an outline. But the first thing that um, he wants to share with them in this farewell address is, um, I want you to remember me um, as you think of me as a servant among you. Like um, in the reinterpretation of the past, or maybe even like the divisive nature of, 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 of the enemy that might collude, that might like work its way into your thoughts and your, and your memories. Like, I don't want you to think of me as a religious zealot that just came out here to um, prove myself right. Because he says, I was humble among you. Like, remember how we first met? Like, I wanted you filled with the Spirit so you could walk and talk and live like me. Like, I wasn't trying to gain followers. I was trying to build family, you know? And two, like, if there's any time that you thought maybe I was in it for the money or maybe I was in it for the fame, like, remember we, we burned those $25,000 worth of, like, scrolls that those witches were using, you know, in that town. Like, I could have taken that money unto myself, but we burned those things down because they were idols in my eyes, and I wept for you. Like, I, I had real tears over you. I wasn't trying to make profit. Remember, if you ever, like, start to forget about who I was, you know, to you or why I was here, remember that I was a shepherd to you, that I cared enough for your well-being. I could have flown in on a Learjet, you know, and just, like, dropped a bunch of sermons and left. But when you think about that, if you're ever tempted to, remember, I stayed up with you all night with Eutychus and preached, not a 30-second soundbite short, like, from noon until morning, I preached because like I just wanted you to know the truth, and I know that if they're in the vacuum of truth there's always wolves. and I came in here like with tears and trepidation because like I came in here to be to be a shepherd and not a superhero <clears throat> and so as I was reading and, and studying this chapter, um, and you might go home and just read the entire chapter. we don't have all the time to do it all, but um, I, you know there, there was a there was a moment when it kind of dawned on me, and I kind of wondered if those elders, it dawned on them too at the, at the beach of Nalitas that um, in his closing remarks in his third missionary journey to this church of Ephesus, it became apparent to me, I think it would come apparent to them as well, that Paul was not just a messenger, but he was the message. That his time there was not just about the words that he could articulate to clarify what the gospel was. His life on display showed them what Jesus was. That he was not just the messenger, that brought a message. He was the message the entire time that he was spending with him. Um, and so I don't know if you're like me, like you don't know sometimes how much somebody means to you until you say goodbye to them. It's like a hand with a fingerprint. You can't see the fingerprint until you move the hand. And then you can see the imprint that that person made on your life when they were there. And I wonder if, if, if there's, a, there's an empathetic moment with these, you know, these leaders, these elders at Ephesus, when that person leaves, you're like, yeah, that was my goofy youth pastor with the spiky hair but that was also kind of Jesus. Like, if any I, ever I wondered, like, does Jesus care, and is he real, and is he out there? Like, I think that God put the youth pastor there to show me my answer. That, like, that second mom away from camp, you know, the mom away from mom, the surrogate person that, like, kind of looked after you when you were away at college, like, that wasn't just the girl, right? That wasn't just Margaret. Like, that was Hosea 11, like, strands of human kindness that Jesus had per- you know, prepared for you, like to to know that he's real. And even those like spiritual heroes and mentors, these beautiful, wonderful time that we live in the internet and we can get all sorts of encouragement from all different diverse places, like that's not just John Piper, like that's Jesus speaking through John Piper, that's Jesus speaking through, you know, Francis Chan or whoever it may be. So So it's like Jesus is incarnational and Acts is not just a book of good old memories to remember. Acts is a reenactment of who Jesus is. It's Jesus putting on flesh and walking amongst us in these apostles and even in some of the lowly and servant-hearted and shepherd-hearted Sunday school teachers that you've had in your life. That wasn't just those people. That was Jesus like walking his life out in front of you. And so so just just like Paul was not just in prison because it was incidental and accidental, Paul was in prison to show us what it meant for Jesus to take on our punishment just because, just like Paul was traveling throughout, you know, um, Samaria and the ends of the earth and all these things, like, to show that it wasn't just Paul, it was Jesus coming and traveling great distances from heaven to earth. So it is, like, all of us, as we foster, I know it's cliche, I know it just, it rolls off my tongue so easy to roll off your tongues, like, it's not just a metaphor, it's a reality. We are being the hands and feet of Jesus. What a privilege and an honor at a time when it's like, oh, you're so close-minded and bigoted and and... Um, ancient to, to believe that God's real and these fairy tales about the gospel, like, what an honor it is to be counted with Jesus, that somebody could look at Kristen or Oliver or Alex and say, you know what, like, somehow, mystically, my time with Alex, like, reminded me that Jesus is real, that he, that, that's, that, that our literal hands and feet being activated and mobilized by the Holy Spirit, um, is what Galatians 2.20 says, what Paul boasts, I think, in the spirit of really of his closing message here in Acts 20. Galatians 2.20, what does he say? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Like, I no longer live. In the same way that Shakespeare is really embedded in every great story that that we see in movies today, like, all of our testimonies are simply wrapping up and reliving his life all of our struggles, all of the death to self, all of the serving in the big and small ways, they're just like, what else is life for but to magnify and amplify and put on display and re-put on display who Jesus was in a blind and deaf world? I have no longer, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I just cannot think of a greater honor and greater privilege than to relive his life. I would rather not live my life so that I might relive his life, I think is what Paul's saying in Galatians 2.20. So here he is, um, verse 13, Acts 20. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. He's gonna do some island hopping. So you're gonna see all the different little islands that are perimeter of Ephesus there. Where We are going to take Paul aboard, and he made his arrangements because, catch this, he was going on foot. Paul wasn't a Learjet guy, he was an on-foot guy. A lot of times we think of leadership gets us to the corner office and further and further away from people. Paul's saying, you know what elevation is? Elevation is proximity. Elevation is I'm going to places where like people are gonna move. I I could not stand thinking about riding off the coast in a boat, missing the opportunity to talk to the people that are on land. I'm going on foot. He's not a a removed missionary. He is a face-to-face, life-on-life missionary. So he's going on foot. And we, we met him at Asos. He keeps moving. He can't stop. We took him aboard and went to Mylit, uh, Mytilene. Verse 15, the next day we set sail there and arrived at Chios. And the next day after that, we crossed over to Samos. I mean, he's just island hopping. Like, like a lot of times um, in the flesh, the older we get, the slower we go. Like, like the American dream says that we die at night. The gospel says we die at noon. We're just getting started, we're, tra- we're aiming at a trajectory. And so whereas most of us are getting into our golf games and our garages and packing up our things, he's accelerating, he's cramming for the test. <laughs> I wanna get more people involved, I wanna get more people preached to, I wanna reach more people. And so it's like at the very end, this fury of island hopping that he's doing to talk to and touch as many people as possible because he believes that death is not the end, it's just the beginning. And so Paul decides to sail past Ephesus because he knows that's a whole church conversation, he's gonna be in there for hours and hours and camps out at Miletus and invites the elders to come to him because he knows he's on a timetable to get to Jerusalem. Like, I think he's, he's, got a, he's, he's got this stubborn, set-like flint attitude about getting to Jerusalem and Rome. His friends are telling him it's not safe. The spirit's telling him it's not safe. His own flesh is telling him it's not safe, but yet he still wants to go. And I think it has to do with the people. Like, there's more people in places like Jerusalem and Rome. But I also think it has to do with the place. It's like MLK. Like, if you're going to confront racism, go to Alabama, like, don't, don't, don't mess around and go to the, to the edges. Go to the belly of the beast. I'm going to Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish religious world, and I'm going to Rome, the capital of the Gentile heathen world, and I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching the gospel because I'm, go, I'm not, I'm not going to win these little battles and not go for the, go for the war. So he goes in there, and then, but the, the third thing is, and it reminds me of, remember when Forrest Gump saves Lieutenant Dan, and he says, why did you save me? That was supposed to be the place that I died. I think somewhere in his mind, he literally uses this word, I'm bound by the spirit to go. But he's going, like, I'm not going to live my life like Christ and not offer my death like him as well. I'm going for those people. I'm going right into the belly of the beast, and I'm going to offer up my life the same way as Jesus is. I can't think of a better way to go. can't think of a better way to go. So that's where he's going. So he stops in Miletus. He gives a little speech. From Miletus, Paul sent for the elders in Ephesus of the church. Verse 18, and when he arrived there, he says to them, You know, the whole time I was living with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I mean, isn't there, like in your 60s and 70s, is there anything you'd rather do than finish well? How many starters do you know that never finish? How many times have you and I begun something that we didn't finish? He's like, my testimony's not just about the beginning, it's about the whole time until the end. And so I wanna talk about that. Like, I wanna talk about the time I had with you from the beginning until the end. He says, this is what I want you to know about me because there's going to be the slander and the, and the tabloids And the the reinterpretation of history in your midst about who I was and what I came to do. If there's anything you associate my name, I want you to know this. I was a servant of Jesus. I walked in humility among you to see you filled with the Holy Spirit, not just for me to walk in power. I came in with tears and trepidation because I cared about you. I didn't just want your attention and your money. I came in the midst of testing and, and plots of Jewish opponents. In other words, I didn't just come up against obstacles, I came up against enemies. I came up against people that I thought I should have trusted, that should have loved me back, and they hated me and spat at me in my face anyways. And I did all that. I did all that because I'm a servant of Jesus. It's about Jesus to me. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, except things that would be helpful to you, both publicly and house to house. You could look at it from proximity, like real close or far off. You can test the integrity of my work. I did it because I was a servant of Jesus from beginning to end. In verse 21, I've declared to both the Jews and the Gentiles, they must turn from God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, I had a, a really great uh, privilege growing up to be part of a real healthy, um, robust, um, like evangelizing um, mega church uh, in, in South Bend, Indiana, where I grew up called Granger Community Church. And um, there was um, uh, it's just an incredible youth group um, where I was uh, ultimately saved coming out of a non-believing household and incredible leaders, um, guys that um, discipled me uh, early in my faith and um, just an incredible move of God. Like I just, you know, programs and money aside, like at the end of the day, God, like a fruit stands for itself. Like people multiplied in discipleship and it can happen in small churches and big churches and I just happened to be part of a really well-done um, Greater Community Church. And um, so one summer, I had the privilege of, uh, of serving there during the summer at Camp Adventure. Camp Adventure um, was Mark Beeson, the lead pastor's kind of little ministry baby that he never let go of, like even in the midst of all the programs and smarter ways to spend money and time. He never missed a summer to come and preach the gospel to like 300 middle school students. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, the new spring event with the thousands. I'm talking about 300 middle school kids um, come out to this thing, and he would just talk about um, baby steps toward Jesus. He would make this stupid little analogy about the sheep that would and just kind of get lost and go over here. And, and he talked about repenting. And just he just had a knack for 10,000 people along with 300 people in front of him. He'd always carry the heart of Jesus and share the gospel um, without apology. And, and he shared it every summer. And I see kids turning to Jesus and walking with Jesus now and just a powerful ministry. And, uh, and I can remember, it really marked me as a young man, this one time during the prayer session after the first service he kinda of went on and he was funny and he told a bunch of little jokes and he imparted a bunch of wisdom in between while you're laughing and you'd remember those things that he'd say. And at the very end I remember his his tears, at the very end of his, his little touch point debrief, welled up, and as though he were talking about his own children, he said to us, Now go love the babies. Which at 21, I was thinking, these kids are 13. They're not babies. Now I'm a full-grown 40-year-old. I'm like, those kids are babies, you know. But it was so good for me to see early in the ministry, the pastor of the, in the middle of a really big church with a lot of money, with a lot of respect, with a lot of influence and affluence with the neighborhood, to see the man at the center of that thing just making it about Jesus. Just making it about Jesus. And that's so important because here's the thing, like, If Jesus prayed it, I think we pray it too. If there's another way to do this ministry thing, let's do it, other than just by Jesus and with Jesus. But I think that we're finding, I've been in ministry now for 20 years since then doing volunteering and staff, and Paul was only on this mission trip for 11 years. Think about the impact that he did in 11 years on this mission trip, on the three different missionary journeys that he had. All of those testimonies and all of the fruit would point back to one thing, that if it's not for Jesus, if it's not about Jesus, it won't work and it's not gonna be worth it. Like, I've, I've tried, and you've tried before. You can make the church-out-of-the-box system with all the little whiteboards and the, and the bricks, and you move them along the system, and you move them like cogs and wheels, and you tell them to go to first base and go to second base, and then they go to third base, and everything works out. But here's the problem. People are not widgets, and they don't fit in boxes. And when you run the boxes, they just get exhausted. And here's the thing. If it's not about Jesus, it won't work. It won't work if he doesn't breathe on it. I've been to Cool Church and been a part of Cool Church you can use the charisma of dynamic leadership and great storytelling and media and all those types of things. And you can create you know, basically a hierarchy. And it's a very pulling thing to be, to be known and seen and to be significant and be basically paid in influence, paid in the cool factor of whatever it is that organization is doing. And, and I've seen the long-term fruit of that is the burnout and the hurt that happens if what if I'm not in that cool group and when I'm not included, and when the verbiage is about Christ, but the culture's not, we've felt that. It doesn't work. I've been in great one-on-one accountability groups before where they're just like nailing you every single week and just like militantly pressing you up against these like external standards and though it might work for a little while because it feels great to get smacked in the face, over the long haul, white knuckling does not work. And so ultimately, I think this is what I get. He's saying like from the beginning into the end, if you looked at me from far and near, I hope this is what you get, that this was never... Even about you, it was about Jesus. Here's the thing, like, not only is ministry without Jesus not working, it's also not worth it. Here's the thing, like, if we get into ministry, whether it be small group ministry or foster care or even, you know, caring for our kids or discipling our families, and it's about them, like, that ministry won't withstand when they turn their back on you, and they will. That ministry can't stand when they flake out on you, and they will. Like, at the end of the day, it will not work. For the short run, maybe, but not for the long run. It will not work, and it will not be worth it unless it's about Jesus. And so I, I think, in, before moving on to this next, next verse, I think that if Paul were standing before us, you know, it's a biblical thing to count the cost. Here's, here's what I will tell you, whether it's tithing, serving in the nursery, doing whatever it is that you're doing at church. This is what I'm telling you. If you are not doing that because you are wanting to relive Jesus' life in you, then I would just tell you don't do it because it's not gonna work and it's not gonna be worth it. If anything in you is like, I'm gonna do it better than my mom did because they did it wrong, I'm gonna do it right and show everybody the right way to do it, don't do it. If you're trying to get into leadership because I got an opinion and I want something to say, but none of that has to do with because the one that died and gave his life for me and to fail for him would be better than success in the world, then don't do it. But here's also what I'm saying, is that if it is because of Jesus and Jesus is the most compelling thing to you and you are in your seat bound by the Spirit and you know that there's no other way to live and no other way to die than head towards the road with him with Jesus and you of everything else a loss except for that, then do it and give it all for it. And it's literally that, that polarizing. If it's not about Jesus, then don't do it. If it is about Jesus, then do it all and you'll never burn out. So verse 22 says this, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing What will happen to me there? I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Like what has gotten into you, Paul? Like what has gotten into you that you are so like adamantly heading towards your own peril, heading towards your own danger? And this is what he says about the internal budget system of his life, like why he makes the decisions that he makes. He says in verse 24, however, I consider my life worthless to me, worth nothing to me, And my only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of the gospel. Like at face value, this sounds like a Navy SEAL, right? And I've had it preached to me like a Navy SEAL, like if you love Jesus, you gotta love pain. It's about pain. Like here's how you know if they're not real because they don't love pain. Like, right? (laughs) This is the idea. It's like Christianity sucks, so just love a sucky life, you know? And it's like, Let's think about that. It's like, there's more verses that I wanna read to you on the screen, but it's like, I don't see this verse as a masochistic verse. I see it as a hedonistic verse. Paul's doing this not because he loves pain. He's doing it because he loves joy. And he knows that a life without Jesus is worthless. He'd rather lose his life without Jesus than waste his life without him. him. He He would rather choose the joy of sacrifice with Jesus than choose the joy of comfort without him. So, um, this, is the, uh, this is one of the verses that I pulled out of Philippians 3, if we could have in this, or 2, rather, 8. Look at the math problem. It's not that I love pain, it's that I love Jesus. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. It's not about militants, it's about marriage. If you had to choose safety without your spouse, if you're married in the room, or danger with your spouse, you'd pick your spouse. How much more with Jesus, right? I consider them, in light of that garbage, Christians love to laugh. We love ice cream cones, there's nothing wrong with music. Like This isn't about hating life, this is about loving Jesus because that's where the center of life is that I may gain in Christ. Another one that I wanted to show you about the race, and this gets into the the, the video I wanna show in a second, but verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know, like we're not running the race because we love pain, we run for a prize. Like, there's sweetness at the end of this. Verse 25, everyone who completes the games goes into strict training, not because we're masochists, but because we know that the crown is worth the race. We get this vision that I don't want to live without this crown, and that's why I race. And so we make a lot of jokes. I'll show this video, but uh, we make a lot of jokes, you know, about crowns in heaven. You know, like, those of you guys that serve in kids, it's like, well, probably have a great parking spot in heaven now because, you know, I served at the 815 service, you know. We think about it in terms of like material things like clothing or a better car. And it's like, I'm just, I've been wrestling with what is a crown? Like what's the thing that compels Paul to run so hard and so diligently and never lose any energy in it, to always be on fire and never burn out. And the story of Sir Nicholas Winton came to mind. I showed the video, maybe you've seen it on, on Instagram. Nicholas Winton, I think even without his wife knowing, was responsible for saving 669 children out of the concentration camp during Nazi Germany. And uh, the video you're about to see, he never met them. He's in this audience, and I just want you to watch the reactions, the responses of this crowd that ultimately owe their life to him, to Nicholas, and kind of the responses that come out of it. So that's him. This is his scrapbook. There are all kinds of fascinating pictures in it. Perhaps you can see, this is a picture of Nicholas Winton himself with one of the children he rescued. If you look at the very back of this scrapbook, fascinating things in it, all the letters, Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diarmont. now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. (laughs) This around my neck, and this is the actual pass that we were given to come to England and I'm another of the children that you saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton If so, could you stand up please? Um, powerful video, um, to say the least. Um, and uh, as I thought about and reflected on Paul's message about crowns, I'm not sure what is going to happen when we get to heaven. But I've got to be certain that some of that language of crowns has to do with people. The crowns aren't, you know, parking spots in heaven and Rolls Royces and you know a gold driveway. Um, but it's people. It's people that somehow, in some way, God, in his great mercy and in his power, translated us to relive his life in such a way that spending time with you or me somehow, by his grace and mercy, was actually spending time with Jesus. And that ultimately, by allowing his death and his life to manifest in us, we are able to extend an invitation out of death to life for others. So I don't know what the ceremony would look like, right? Like what the crown ceremony is going to look like. Like we get up and get a trophy. Like if it was anything like that, it would be something like everybody in this row would like turn around and express gratitude and thanks for the death of, and the life of Jesus that was reproduced in the generation before them and the group of people that, that led them to Jesus. And that likewise that row two would turn around and now row one and row two would now be able to both turn around and generationally and exponentially turn towards row three and say, because of the way that death and life manifest in you, I got to experience the death and life of Jesus. Not just the message, but the life that you shared with me. And vice versa, four to five and five to six and six to seven and hundred to 105. And then ultimately we would all turn and throw all of our crowns down the way that Revelation says on Jesus and said, because of your death and because of your life, I now know. I now know the journey out of the grave and into everlasting life because of you, Jesus, because of the crown that you wear on your head of the great joy that was set ahead of you. And so here's the great tragedy, right? Like we think we are, we are wise, Jesus says, by saving our life, but by saving it, we actually lose it because there are some people, it says, that will get to heaven by salvation and grace alone, but, but by fire. And we will have no one to stand for us. We will have no crowns. We will have a golf game that could just max out on anybody else, and we will we will have trinkets and accolades and popularity and and maybe a little bit of coming coaches, but we will have no people that we'll stand with, and that will be the sadness. I think if there's any sadness or regret when we get to that place, is is living a life without crowns, is living a life without running the race that's that's ahead of us, and so um, and so truly, I think that to get into the heart of a missionary to. Get into the guts of really what Paul is doing and saying, you know, in his parting words of this speech, you know, is that that um, that each of these moments like the, the culture continues to tell us that sacrifice is where we lose, but sacrifice is where we gain. That's the lie. You think that you're losing. When you sacrifice, you know, for your spouse, because it makes you feel like you're the doormat and it makes you feel like you're being permissive and it makes you feel like you're giving them permission to walk all over you but he's saying but that's where the crown lives it's actually in the sacrifice where life is it's in the sacrifice you know where gain is right now you know like you have these dreams you know maybe they're from the lord or maybe they're from the american dream or maybe they're somewhere in between and right now you've got those dreams on hold because you know that the obedience that is in your heart that you're bound to is to love the people that are in front of you and you don't have that capacity to go after that dream. And in your culture, in your flesh, in your head, you might be thinking, this is me losing. When in fact, he might be saying, this is you gaining. This is you gaining. This is you gaining r- real wealth and real ri- richness. Like at the end of time, when we stand into the auditorium of all the people that will all bow down and throw their crowns in Jesus, there's gonna be a great translation of things that were gained that we thought were gained were actually losses. And things that were losses were actually gained, and I think he would tell us at a church like this to count the cost because it's harder than you think, and 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 it costs more than you think. And the real the real incarnation of Paul is not so much great planning and strategy or even perseverance; it's clarity of vision of what matters and what doesn't, what's loss, and what's and what's ultimately gain. And so he closes up, and and and, and he he. He calls uh, the elders of this church uh, to respond, you know, to what he's talking about, and and so he kind of closes some doors about the possibilities and implications of what it means to um, lay down our life, you know, for Jesus and lay down our life for for the church. Um, Ultimately, it's not a uh, a free for all to sort of pick multiple choice, like I'm going to put puzzles together for Jesus or I'm going to go to um, build amusement parks for Jesus. Maybe those are some things, some nice things that we'll do, but ultimately. What the call is across the board for all people that are listening to this, this speech and what we would listen to in Acts chapter 20 is to be shepherds. To respond appropriately is not just to do whatever that you want, but to, to be a servant among his church, to lay down our lives as living sacrifices for the church, and then ultimately to be shepherds. This is what he says. Now I know none of you uh, among you whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He says, therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of your blood, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Did you guys ever see this movie John Q with Denzel Washington? It's set where he's like, he's like running, you know, uh, between the authorities to try and like get his son who needs a heart transplant, you know, like to give his own heart up for the son to save the son. Imagine being a dad like I think a lot of us would would definitely be in that same spot of like I would rather lay down my heart, you know, for my son and, and the imagery he gets, he talks about a church whose blood was on the hands of Paul and was bought by the hands of Jesus, bought by the blood of Jesus. And it, it made me think this week about that movie. It's like, he, it's like saying mission work is like thinking about the heart transplant that a son needs and the cost of the heart that a father gave. And carrying that heart from the father to the son is about the level of trepidation and the amount of um, critical caution that a missionary should carry with. The cost, what, it, what, it would, what, it, what is necessary for the son and what's at stake for the son, what it costs the father, that's the level of trepidation that it seems like Paul is carrying. It's like the blood of the church and the blood of, of Jesus is walking around with Paul as he goes to these different islands. That's the kind of like weight that he carries along with his heart of a missionary. And he says, with that weight, this is the proper response then, is not to drop bombs from Twitter and just tell people what to do with their life, right? It's to be shepherds. Keep watch, he says, over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, be shepherds of God's church. Like, in other words, if the church was a business, Paul would have said, be a CEO. Come up with a good plan, make sure all the cogs are in the right spot, set the thing in motion then move to California and create passive income, right? That's That's what you would do, right? Okay, but he's not saying that because the church is not a business. It's a flock. And so it needs shepherds. If the church was a dictatorship, it would need this real strong, like directive, bossy, intimidating leader to keep everybody in line and make everybody obey all the orders. But he's saying it's not a dictatorship. It's a flock. So it needs shepherds. If it was a democracy, you know, we would all have these votes and there would be people that are politicians and they would spin the narrative and create a story that everybody can get behind, but it's not a democracy. It's a flock, and so it needs shepherds. It needs people that will care for people with the character of Jesus. And so verse 29 says, I know that after I leave that savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Like as soon as you would take up grass out of your, out of your yard, there's going to be weeds. And it's not a question of if, but when. Wolves will come up when there isn't shepherds. I remember reading uh, when we were um, learning a little bit about just safety and and for, for children's ministry through a ministry called Grace, you know, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And uh, one of the things I remember from the book that they gave us called Predators was like it's always the person you would least expect is actually the sexual perpetrator. It's not the weird person over there in the corner with the mustache. It's like the guy hosting the party that you should be most worried about, Truthfully, truth be told. And he said that, He said, you know why? Like people pray, those types of people can pray on churches because they know that churches are desperate and they will ask for help for people that that shouldn't be helping, right? To fill those gaps. So this is what he's saying. Not only will people not be shepherded if the church doesn't act as shepherds, they'll get eaten by wolves. It's a 0 sum game. Like if you don't fill up a patch in your yard with grass, it becomes weeds. And likewise, if there aren't people that are shepherds of his flock that are moving amidst, amidst people, like lies are inevitable. They are inevitable, and they're floating around. And, and so therefore, the call of a missionary is not just to drop the bomb and leave, it's to, it's to stay and to cover, to be shepherds. Because look what he says, he says, savage wills will come in among you, will not spare the flock, verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away from them. Verse 31 says, so be in your guard. Remember that for three years, I've never stopped warning you each night and day with tears, and so I just thought we would reflect on this for this section of scripture. The gospel arrows there on the top of the screen. There are people that are in your life that if you are not um, eagerly and like Christ, um, laying your life down um, as a shepherd. In we don't have it. Um, that's okay. It's on Wayne's arm as a tattoo, so he can he can wave his arm up uh, later on. You can go and see it. Um, the first arrow of the gospel. Um, the gospel illustration that we've talked about you know, so many times in the book of Acts is that he came. And there's people that need to be shepherded and reminded they're not alone because he came. And the call of a missionary is, is to shepherd that. You know, number two, that second arrow that Jesus lived, that he lived a perfect life. And if we were living perfectly, we wouldn't need Jesus to live the perfect life. And his life that he showed us was not just to give us the WWJD bracelet to copycat what he's doing. His life was to show us the human we could have been but weren't. And so therefore, the lie of you're awesome and discover your greatness in God needs to be corrected in truth. And shepherds aren't just nice people, they tell the truth. That there's messages that are gonna come up from wolves and they're gonna have PhDs and they're just gonna come into the church and be like, you're awful, get it together and tithe so that you're not awful anymore. And they need to be told like they're forgiven in Christ. And all ministry and all life can only start from that place you're forgiven in Jesus and people need shepherds to tell them that, to show them that. There's Christians in this room today that are exhausted and empty. And I've seen so many times that even two empty Christians, two or more gathered, the Spirit would dwell in them and preach to each other and to remind each other that it's actually emptiness that we find the fullness of Jesus. We find the filling of His Spirit. And there's no vacancy of His Holy Spirit. We do not need to worship heaven to come down because He lives in us, and we're full of the Spirit today. And and people need to be shepherded towards that. There's people here that feel abandoned. that feel abandoned. And the shepherding instinct is, is, again, it's not just to be a nice guy and, and feed people. It's to remind people of the sovereignty of God. You think his hands are not too big for this issue. People need to be told the truth. They need to be told the truth. Lastly, there's all of us, you know, that we wake up on different days wayward and being led astray. And we need to be reminded that he's coming back and it's soon. And our death is noon. It's not night. It's just the beginning. And to be reminded to stay on course, to be, to be a missionary, to, 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 to um, reenact the life that he, that he lived for us. And so the intentional question that I would leave with us today as we um, consider with the people that we love, our spouses, our small groups, is is this one. Um, If he called us to the beach, you know, called us away from home to spend a few hours with him, and Paul was speaking to us, not just the elders at Ephesus, the question I think he might ask us is, what is costing you your crown? What is costing you from starting well but not finishing? The first question I think he might ask us is, um, do you live as a servant among us? Like the prayer of Jesus is probably the same as ours. Like, is there another way? And we are finding out. Like, I think I'm in the thick of it, and I think you're in the thick of it too. Ministry is so much harder than you thought. And you're thinking, why would something so good be so hard? Like, if God is in control and He wants this so much, and I've said yes to Him, then why would He make it easier for me? And the reality is, is because He's not producing gurus, He's producing servants. And he's got to prove you in that. He's got to test you in that. Are you here because you saw some cool influencer that was a Christian and dressed in cool clothes and you wanted to be like that guy or are you here because of Jesus? Because you're bound by Jesus and he will test you on that through the hardship of your ministry. And so the question I have for you to finish the race and to collect the crown that he has for you, to stand with those people that, that, that God has assigned to you to reach and teach with the gospel, are you a servant among, among us? The second question I would ask is, is your life becoming you know, a living sacrifice? That, um, that, in, that in every way, I think it's like the media, the external, the internal, the emotional, from the flesh on, it's like everything in our life is going to tell us that sacrifice is loss. And we have an opportunity to trust all of that or trust Jesus when he says that sacrifice is gain. If you go out trying to give CPR to one of his kids and the kid dies on the table and doesn't get healed, are you a loss or are you a success? If you're going out trying to reach the kids that Jesus has you to reach. Sacrifice, no matter what the outcome in, it what the outcome in is, is gain in Christ. And the world is a complete upside down explanation of that, where heaven is right side up. And lastly, I think the question, what is costing your crown, brings me to ask is do you consider yourself a shepherd um, of God's flock? The difference between a shepherd um, and a cowboy is, you know, a shepherd leads by example and a cowboy leads by opinion. Are you here amongst us, you know, as, as you consider your small group, as you consider your family? Are you here because you think you have the better way? Are you here because Jesus has shown the way and you want to live out his life, come what may, in front of people? That's what I think the question would be. A shepherd versus a cowboy. A shepherd um, is is looking to serve and not and not be served. Um, a shepherd is looking to to cover, you know, and, and, and to not control. And so these are the questions that I had that we would um, maybe consider for the week. And um, and, I think, um, and I think that this, uh, this, uh, these farewell addresses, these, these notes from Paul, I think can speak to us at all different times of life. I know it's spoken to me um, this week about what it means uh, to be a missionary in the places that we work and live and learn and do life. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.